Scripture reading is in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am able to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, good morning again. As you heard read, we are continuing to walk our way through the book of Philippians. And I don't know this for certain, but my hunch is uh, when you think about well-known, like really familiar verses, um, as, it, like, as a percentage of the total number of verses in a book, I'm willing to bet Philippians has more what we call famous verses, coffee cup verses, than probably any other book as a percentage to the number of verses in the book than any other book in the Bible. And so this week we get to another very well-known, very familiar verse where Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And as with all of our really familiar verses, we need to be careful that we understand the context that he's building on so we can understand the point that Paul's making. So if you've been here the past few weeks, you know that context uh, has been laid out. And in our passage, it starts with a, a therefore. And you know the question you're supposed to ask when you have a therefore. Yes, what's the Therefore, therefore. That was really good. A lot of you knew that. What's the therefore, therefore? So we, we, we could also translate therefore as because. You could hear Paul saying, because Christ was obedient for us, and because through that obedience, he secured an eternal reward for us, so too are we to live lives of, of obedience. That's what the therefore is therefore. That's the context that Paul's building on. And we can see that this is a passage about personal holiness. And we, the, the Christianese term that we use to talk about our personal holiness is sanctification. And I'm sure the word sanctification is familiar to a lot of you here, but it's something that we can never get, we can never hear too much about. We can never begin to think that we have, uh, that we know all we need to know about sanctification. We can never think that we've moved past needing to hear about sanctification. In fact, Peter, writing in 2 Peter, talking about sanctification, he says exactly this. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. So it is good that we are reminded about God's purpose in our life when it comes to our pursuit of, of holiness, his purpose when it comes to our sanctification. About a year and a half ago, Angela and I, had, we were asked to speak at a conference in Lake Tahoe. And, and there's this rule in Christian ministry that whatever the conference is that you're asked to speak at, if it's in Lake Tahoe, you say yes. 
and we had a little bit of time to, to explore the area. And there was this road, I've since come to understand that it's a fairly famous road. And it's about a thousand feet above the surface of the lake. And you're looking, it seems to go straight out into the lake. You can see the entire lake. You can see the mountains, 360 degrees around the lake. But it's kind of harrowing because on both sides of that road, there are sheer 1,000 foot cliffs. And I, I began to think as I looked at this road that this road is a good picture of a Christian understanding of sanctification. Because if we think too little of our role in that process, we fall off the left side of that road. If we think too little of God's role in that process, we fall off the right side of that road. But when we understand how God has designed our sanctification, then we know what it's like. We're able to experience that the road that God has intended for us, a road full of peace, full of joy, and full of satisfaction and beauty. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at sanctification, and I want to answer three simple questions about sanctification from the text. First, what sanctification is. Second, how sanctification practically happens. And the third, what sanctification accomplishes. So first, what is it? Well, sanctification comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. So sanctification is the process of becoming more holy. And it's easy to hear that and think, well, Jim, I, I mean, I thought I, was, <laughs> I thought I was made holy the moment I believe. And the answer is yes, all of us were. The moment we believe, we are legally declared to be holy in heaven. But most of us down here, the moment we believe, our lives are still a complete mess. <laughs> when you look at how far we have to go. So the process of sanctification is making presently true, making increasingly true that which has been declared legally true in heaven. That's what sanctification is. And it's not a process that we'll ever finish. Sanctification will go on until either we die or Jesus comes back. So you really have three phases to the Christian life. And I, and I think about them like this. You have justification first, the moment we believe when we are freed from sin's penalty. We have sanctification, the pursuit of personal holiness, when we are freed or being freed from sin's power. And then finally, when we die or Jesus comes back, we have glorification where we are saved from sin's presence altogether. And so what we're focusing on this morning is that second phase of the Christian life, being freed from sin's power. Here's how the author of the book of Hebrews describes these three phases. He says, for by a single offering, Jesus on the cross, he has perfected for all time. Who? Those who down here on earth are being made holy. Those who are being sanctified. So we're declared perfect for all time. Who? Those who are still in process. And it can be, it can be tempting to think, well, you know, if this process is never over in this life, why should I even try? And the answer is because God has ordained that the joy of the Christian life is rooted in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. The joy of the Christian life is rooted in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. So that's why we want to pursue it. That's why we don't give up. And that's why Paul, writing to the Romans church, says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined predestined to what to be conformed into the image of his son 
God has predestined that those who believe would be conformed. So sanctification is at its core a war. Sanctification is a war against old habits, against our sin, against an old way of thinking. It's a war where we're trying to put off the old self and put on our new self. When I became a Christian at Florida State, it was quickly apparent to me that there were lots of things in my life that needed to change. (laughs) Some things were really overt sin issues. Some things were more subtle that maybe everybody didn't see. Some things were just deep-seated ways that I thought about my life and the things that I would do. But it became clear to me when I believed that there is a war and this war is on (laughs) and this war is hard. And it was really encouraging to me to be able to look at the Apostle Paul and see I'm not the only one who has a hard time in this war. Paul says to the Roman church again in Romans 7, talking about this war, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We're in the process of being freed from the power of sin as we pursue our sanctification. And before I move on, I wanna, I wanna help us kind of analyze how are we doing in our sanctification? <laughs> you know, give us a few diagnostics to genuinely examine how things are going. And, and the first is this. Is your pursuit of personal holiness different when no one's looking? I think Paul's calling us to to examine this in verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul knows they were obedient in his presence, but are they listening when he's not around? Because that's, that's a sign of actually having somebody's heart. Uh, with one of my older boys when, when they were younger, we had a real problem with him grabbing all the Christmas ornaments off the bottom of the tree. And so Angela and I began a, a very uh, lengthy process of trying to train this son not to take the ornaments, these breakable ornaments off the bottom of the tree. And I think it's kind of funny the way we parented our older two and our younger two because now we're just like, yeah, no ornaments on the bottom of the tree at all. <laughs> but We worked really hard to train this child not to touch the ornaments and we succeeded. We were really proud of ourselves. He stopped touching the ornaments. And so one night we went out to dinner and according to our babysitter, the moment we went out the front door, do you know what he did? He went for the ornaments and we were able to see, yeah, we changed his his behavior, but we don't have his heart. And so what Paul is wanting us to examine is Does God really have our heart in our personal obedience? Or are we just conforming to certain behavior patterns so that people will think differently about us? That's the first diagnostic. The second diagnostic, does your sanctification extend to all areas of your life? Look at verse 14. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things Every area of our life. Now, this would never happen in my house. But I could imagine a home where a a husband might volunteer his his home for community group and not tell his wife until about five minutes before everybody arrives. And I could imagine said wife beginning to run all over the house, grabbing the loose stuff and throwing all of it in the one room that people are least likely to go into. Is that how we look at our pursuit of sanctification? 
Do we clean up the areas of our life where people are most likely to see? But there are other areas that we're not examining. Are we examining every room of our house in our pursuit of our personal holiness? And then thirdly, how much do we feel our dependence on God in our daily walks, in everything? Do we see increasingly that we need God more and more in our life? Or are we remaining flatline? Or are we in a phase where we're seeing our need for God less and less in our life? Because in a physical life, our maturity is marked by a journey from dependence to independence. You know, I mean, it's a good thing if a child grows up and they're no longer dependent on their parents. They grow independent. And that's one of the fundamental marks of maturity in our lives. But our spiritual lives are exactly the opposite. They're marked by a journey from independence to dependence. So the more we feel our need for God in everything that we do, to that degree, we can have some merit of confidence that we're maturing in our faith, that we're maturing in our sanctification. And in a room this large, I know that there are people in here who are tempted to fall off one or the other sides of that that cliff. You know, we have people on on one side who don't value our, what, what we need to do, what we contribute in our process of sanctification. And then there are others who don't see how much help we have along the way. There are others who are incapacitated by the command to be holy as Jesus is holy. And so my hope is that a a proper understanding of how sanctification happens and what it produces, what it accomplishes, will help bring all of us back up on that road together to enjoying the Christian life the way that Jesus intended for us to enjoy it. So those are the last two things I want to do. How sanctification happens and what it accomplishes. So first, how sanctification happens. In the words of one commentator... The Christian path of sanctification is us working out and God working in. That's how sanctification is accomplished. We work out and God works in. So I want to look at those two areas. First, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We work it out in a sense of awe, with a sense of wonder, with a sense of respect, not a sense of fear or guilt, And there is a real work to be done. And I I think if you talk to your average churchgoer in Orlando, I think that their understanding of what they contribute to their process of sanctification or, or the need for them to contribute to it could be one of the most deficient areas of their understanding of the Christian life. We have a real work to do. But Paul, he doesn't say work on your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. What does he say? work out your salvation. And there's a big difference because we can only work out the things that we already possess. So the the feeling here is something akin to a child getting a bike for Christmas and a dad going to that child and saying, let's work out your bike riding skills so that you can really enjoy this gift. That's the command. We're to work out the salvation. Or maybe it's, uh, it's akin to working out our marriages. You know, we have a call. We receive this gift of marriage and then the real work begins. <laughs> then we need to work out this marriage. And I've, I've had the privilege of being with a lot of engaged couples over the years. And, you know, I'm 
kind of makes me laugh on a regular basis how naively optimistic they are about how easy that process and how enjoyable that process of working out their marriage is. But I'm constantly appreciative of how excited they are to work out their marriage. And I am constantly challenged that why don't, why don't I look at working out my salvation with the same kind of eagerness that they do to work out their marriage because the concept is very similar. So how do we do this? How exactly do we work out our salvation? We work out our salvation by dying to ourselves and living for Christ. Dying to ourselves and living for Christ over and over and over again. That's the rest of the Christian life. And so there's a Christian author, his name's Paul Miller. He, He became really well known for a book called A Praying Life but he has another book called A Loving Life. And in that book, he describes this process of sanctification, dying to yourself and living for Christ as this constant J-curve. All right, so you know what a J-curve is. It has a beginning point, it descends, so things get worse before they get better, but the final position, the final place is better than the initial place. That's, that's a J-curve. Our call in the Christian life, the way we're sanctified is constantly dying to ourselves so that we can live for Christ. We die to our sins so that we can live for Christ. We die to our expectations and our desires and our perceived rights so that we can live for Christ. And we didn't come up with this process. We do this because this is the path that Jesus gave us. This is the pattern that Jesus gave us. Jesus displayed a life of death going down the J-curve. And then he rose in resurrection, completing the J-curve. And so the rest of our life is going to be mirrored after this. We die to our sin, we die to our rights, we die to our desires so that we can live in Christ, believing deeply that his path for us is better, his will for us is better, his understanding of what's gonna happen on the other side of this dying process is better for us. And this is what Paul means in the next chapter, so I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, when he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that's the upside of the J-curve, and may share in his sufferings, the downside of the J-curve, culminating in becoming like him in his death. This J-curve has been around for 2,000 years. But the non-Christian Western world all right, they, they know nothing of the J-curve. In the non-Christian Western world, we have a continuum of success and failure. That's all we know. So every, everything that happens in our life is gonna be perceived by the non-Christian world as moving us one step closer to success or one step closer to failure. Everything has to be integrated and processed through success or failure. But the Bible says that everything that we experience is going to work towards our success because we will be working towards our sanctification. That's what the Bible says. So very practically, what might this look like? Well, let's say you have a blocked career goal. The world would certainly see that as one step away from success and one step towards failure. But the Bible says you need to die to your expectations of what your career would look like. Trusting me that it will be better, that I am in this, that I will be using these things to conform you into my image and use you for my glory. 
we die to our hopes that we might live for him. Or maybe we just feel unappreciated or misunderstood or undervalued. Well, the Bible's calling us to die to our hopes and our expectations of what other people might think of us the same way that Jesus did. So that we can relate to him in his sufferings in the way that he was misunderstood and undervalued and underappreciated and even despised that we might live in him. This is the J-curve. And God has given us a myriad of tools to assist us on this journey, to help focus us, to help us to want to die to ourselves and live to Christ, die to ourselves and live to Christ. And I, you know, I don't have time to list half of the tools that I think God has given us to fuel this, process, this part of our sanctification. But I do want to point out one because I think it could be the most overlooked part of the process, and that's the Sunday gathering. The author of Hebrews says, do not neglect the gathering. Because the author of Hebrews knows that the gathering, it isn't here so that we can check something off the, the religious list. The gathering, it isn't here so that, that God can see how devoted we really are. The gathering is here to reorient us. That we would come back together once a week, that we'd be reoriented, refocused, that our priorities would fall in line and we would leave more motivated to die to ourselves and live for Christ. So, It's not a stretch to say there is a direct correlation to our prioritization of the weekly gathering of the people of God and our own sanctification. That's just one of the tools that God has given us to assist us in this process of sanctification, in working out our sanctification. But we're not the only ones doing the work here. We're working out while God works in. Look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he gives us the desire to do these good things and then he gives us the ability to carry them out. It's God who first opened our eyes to sin. It's God who first started to draw us closer to Jesus. It's God who gave us the desires to begin the path down sanctification. And it's God who gives us the power to carry it out. And if you had a non-Christian friend ask you, why do you believe in Jesus? Why do you believe in Jesus? My hunch is that everyone here would have an objective answer and a subjective answer, if you have time to really think out the answer. The objective answer is because I believe the Bible. I believe we can trust the Bible. I believe it's historically accurate. The evidence I, I look at makes me really believe logically that Jesus did resurrect from the grave. And I believe that when you consider all the worldviews out there, the Bible best explains the realities of sin, of suffering, and death. So that's the objective answer. I believe Jesus is the most plausible hope that we have. But the subjective answer is he's changing me. It's subjective because you can't logically prove it, but your desires are being changed. Your motivations are being changed. The Bible says that when we believe, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and, and changes us, and we're experiencing that. That's the subjective answer, and that's what Paul's getting at here, God working in us, the Holy Spirit working in us to conform us, not just on the outside, but at the very core, into the image of Christ. God gives us this, the most powerful aid in our battle. And that's why he says again to the Roman church, 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. The flesh, your own desires, our own sinful desires. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We're not left alone on this journey. Now, if you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this. We can change our behaviors, but we cannot change our core motivations. We can't change the things that we really desire and care about. And that's what God is changing. The ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a ministry to put the spotlight on Jesus, to make Jesus our greatest desire, to make Jesus our core motivation. And as that happens, we become more and more like him. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So what, again, practically might this look like as it plays out in our lives? Are you having a hard time forgiving someone? Well, the ministry of the Holy Spirit inside of us is a ministry to help us to see supernaturally all the ways that we have been forgiven by Jesus. And the more we see that, the more we have forgiveness to offer other people. Or maybe the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that, in that circumstance, he shows us that really what we're desiring more than anything is justice. And he reminds us that, that justice wasn't served on us, that we were justified by grace alone, and that we serve a God that will bring justice to every corner of the universe one day. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that moment begins to melt away the desires that we have that our unforgiveness would serve some measure of justice in this world. And again, it's, it's the J-curve. We have to die to our desire to hold a grudge. And, and that's a real and painful death. Our, we die to our desire to see justice perfectly administered in our lifetime. But we do that that we might live in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That we might display the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to everyone else. That's the J-curve. That's sanctification. And so we work it out and God works it in. And so the command that we have is to take hold of that power, to use that power. And that's what Paul's saying when he says, hold fast, that's a command, hold fast to the word of life, hold fast to Jesus, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And it's certainly what Jesus meant when Jesus says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And as we work out our salvation and as God works in our salvation, some very specific things begin to happen. And this is my last and briefest of points. What sanctification accomplishes. Sanctification accomplishes our joy and their hope. Our joy and their hope. So first, our joy. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So Paul's at the end of his life here. He he thinks he could be at the end of his life. And he has gotten to a point in his sanctification that he is able to see joy even in that. He is genuinely able to see joy in all circumstances because of where he is in his process of sanctification because sanctification produces joy. And so the question I want to flesh out is why is it that sanctification produces joy? And the answer is simple. 
because sin kills joy. When Adam and Eve were on this earth experiencing perfect fellowship with God, I can't imagine the joy that they were experiencing. Joy that that we only get glimpses of in the best parts of this life. But then sin came in and what did sin do? It took all that joy away. And this is what Jesus is working to renew. Jesus has come here. He's lived a life that we can't. He's traded places with us so that now we no longer have the penalty of our sin hanging over us. And we now have the power to begin to fight sin. Sin no longer has power of our lives. So it makes sense that the more we gain power over sin, the more that joy that was originally intended is restored. The farther down we get in the process of sanctification, the more mature we get in Christ, the more joy we are going to experience regardless of the events transpiring around us. And as we experience that joy, we become a beacon of hope to everyone around us. Our joy, their hope. Look at verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without, blemle- without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, surely, <laughs> Jesus is in mind here. Paul is thinking of Matthew five fourteen when Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, I love Ronald Reagan, but his exegetical skills need some work. <laughs> Because the light, the the city on the hill, it isn't a country, it's a church. And so Jesus is saying these words as he's delivering the most famous of all sermons in the history of the world, the Sermon on the Mount. And in those days, cities were set on hills because that's, it's easier to fight off invaders when you've got the high ground. And so as Jesus is preaching the sermon, most scholars think the sun is setting. And as the sun is setting, the sky is getting darker and you see all these lights popping up on the hills around us. And what Jesus is communicating and what Paul is reiterating is that the darker the culture gets, the brighter we shine. The more crooked and twisted the generation, the more we can be helpful in it. But we can't shine unless we're experiencing the joy of our sanctification. Sanctification isn't just something we're commanded to do. It exists that we might enjoy the gift of salvation even more in this life and that all those around us might be able to taste it as well. That's sanctification. It's that road. And, and it is a thin road. It's not an easy thing to stay on that road. But when we, the more we understand the way God has designed sanctification, the way that we understand we have a real and contributing role in this process, and God has a real supernatural role in this process, we're able to walk the path of Christian sanctification and experience everything that Adam and Eve, well, we can get glimpses of everything that Adam and Eve experienced and glimpses of everything that we will experience in eternity as we have joy that transcends any circumstance in the Christian life. So I wanna finish by praying for just this, that our sanctification would be tangibly affected this morning, that, that, that through the gathering, not just the teaching, but the singing and the praying and the fellowship, that we would be motivated, not out of a sense of fear and guilt to go live a good life, 
but that we might really see that J-curve, that we have an opportunity to die to our rights and our desires, that we might live fully for Christ, that we might display all the grace that he offers us to everyone around us. Let's pray. God, we know, we know that our lives matter, that our actions matter, but we know that we are so woefully ill-equipped in and of ourselves to be able to walk down the path of sanctification, to be able to be conformed more and more into the image of your son. And so we ask this morning that you would make us excited. Make us excited about our role in this process because of your role. That we would understand all the joys that we get to experience as we work out our salvation with a sense of awe and wonder. Wonder that you would love us. I pray that we would be encouraged, that we would be motivated, and that, that you would enable us to live lives that really matter. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.